0: Greetings in Jesus name. Thank you for that song. Not extremely familiar, but very, very meaningful. And thank you for that opening message, Brother Allen, on the will of God. People have sought The will of God or the confirmation of God in putting out fleeces and many other things like that. I think there are times when God will, will he give us wiggle room for our doubts, maybe I should say, because in that case, God's command, specific command was clear but he wanted some confirmation. But I've heard of that being abused as well, so be careful. So thank you for those thoughts. I'd like to move ahead with the message uh, from two weeks ago where I had the anatomy of an identity, and this morning I'd like to speak on the anatomy of the pilgrim church. For a um, for an opening scripture that we'll get some thoughts first, Hebrews eleven. Can turn to Hebrews eleven. We're going to be looking at significant parts of history this morning, and how the Pilgrim Church has come down through the ages what it has done and what it has not done and what it actually um, has always, has always confirmed as is God's will through the ages, usually, usually in contrast to the dominant or the prevailing church. The pilgrim church was usually a minority church. And so we'll we want to look at that, we look at the anatomy of that pilgrim church. So you're probably at Hebrews 11, but why don't we just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we are thankful to you this morning that you have given us your word as your objective will. Yes, Lord, we do not always understand, we do not always agree, but Lord, as we, uh, as we seek your face, as we put our own will aside, as we allow you to speak to us, Lord, in the context of a larger body, Lord, you give us direction. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, this morning you would now bless us as we look into your word, look into your, what your people have done in the past and learn from them. And then, Lord, we pray you give us direction for our future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, i like to look at, uh, at uh, just a very tiny snippet of Moses. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had recompense respect unto the recompense of the reward. We could actually have a message. What I want to draw out of this one is this man Moses. There was a time in his life when he made. A decision, a choice. He's a choosing rather this, refusing that, and choosing this. And because of his values that he that he I looked at the value at that whole thing. And what I want to bring out from that scripture is. That decision by that one man is still affecting us today. Moses, that decision to refuse Egypt and to go with the people of God has an effect on each one of us today. In other words, our lives would be different, history would be different were that choice not have been made. Now, we could say, well, yeah, God would have raised someone else up, and that's, you know, we don't know. But the point is, that actually had an impact on history. We are not an island to ourselves either. We are here, and we are who we are, largely because of decisions and actions of people that went before us. That's true. You think that through. History does have purpose and meaning. It has been a part of what has formed our identity and our character. If we don't know history, if we don't know how we got to where we are, we lack some very specific tools to, uh, we we don't possess tools that will enable us to detect um, why we believe what we do, and uh, I can't, I, I was struggling a little bit how to communicate this with you. But if we don't actually understand how we got to where we are, we actually don't possess tools very well to move ahead in the future. The less we know about history, the less we can identify forces, the force and the weight that those historical influence have had on us. And then the less able we are to analyze the situation that we are in, that's really what I want to want to bring out, and that makes us more vulnerable. <clears throat> the Bible says, when it talks about the Old Testament, it says these things were written for our instruction. We can look in the past, and we know how people have. Responded to their situation. They, some of them have responded well and they are our examples. Some have not responded well and they are warnings. That's biblical history. The scripture says they were written for us. And you could actually extrapolate from that and you can also learn from non-biblical history as well. Because although it's not inspired in the sense It still had the same context. So we can learn from history, both biblical and non-biblical. Now, it's true that God has no grandchildren. And we talked about that before. Each one of us, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says he makes all things new. He creates a new heart within us. And he washes us. And he cleanses us. He forgives us our sins. He puts his spirit within us. And we have a new life that does not erase your history. <laughs> and the impact is had. That's what I wanted to bring out. Okay? <clears throat> we, stand, we stand on the shoulders of giants, people in history. People that have fought giants, they would not allow the true faith to die before us. Now it's our turn and the decisions we make and the actions we take will have an ongoing impact into the future generation. And I would say probably way, way, way beyond what we can imagine. I would guess so. If decisions that we make individually and then as a corporate body will have an impact beyond what we can imagine. May those that come behind us find us faithful. So. Maybe we do need Alan's message. Here we are at the congregation looking into the future. Decisions need to be made. Ministries are pursued. Values are chosen. Relationships are developed, both amongst ourselves and outside of ourselves. Are they going to be consistent with the word of God? Will they be wise decisions? Will we make the hard choices or just the easy ones? Okay, so the last message that I mentioned was titled The Atomy of an Identity. Living in a pluralistic society like we do, we have many, many, many options. Many, we are exposed and we're bombarded with many ideas. Because that is true, I proposed that it is important to know and understand clearly what you believe. What you believe to be true. If you don't really understand who you are and what you believe, you're more, very, very vulnerable to those influences. And you're vulnerable to, um, say, those the most... The person who had the most charisma or the most um, persuasiveness. And if you don't really know what you believe, or worse yet, you're apologetic for what you claim to believe, you are not. You will not be able to communicate the truth to unbelievers. You won't be able to very well pass it on to your own children, or to other people. So, last message was given mostly to convince us that ideas and movements and persuasions they have certain beliefs, characteristics and practices and they get labeled and they are identified by names and I gave many names, the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics, and you can come up to the Calvinist and the Amish. <laughs> They're characteristic, their belief systems. My plea was that we have an identity that is clear that is biblical, and it is firmly held. We need to have a strong identity with the truth so that we not sway from it, and so that we also can persuade others. And then I finished by saying i like to, in the next message, identify ten points that we believe identify the true historical church. Some of these points will distinguish us Us, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. Those ten points will distinguish those that church from many, if not most, of the other churches. In some points, and I said that is not divisive and it's not sectarian. That is actually a defense of the truth. Turn to Matthew 16. And we'll look at a foundation for this church, this pilgrim church. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he said to his disciples, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I read on here, yes. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven... And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we'll stop reading there. Jesus was asking, um, "What do people identify me as? I am. I've, I've come on the scene. I have made. I, I've I've made a wave. I have. I'm. I'm a, I'm a new phenomenon. I am." I'm coming with my teaching, and I have the healing. Now, he didn't say all that, but that is exactly what's happening. So who do people say that I am? And they came with these ideas. Well, some said, you're John the Baptist. He had recently been killed. You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And the others said, well, no, uh, I think I think you're the Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Okay, so that's what people think and say. What do you think? Who am I? And Peter, as illuminated by the Spirit of God, said it right. You are the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, that spirit-induced confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that rock, this foundation, I will build my church. And he said, and the powers of hell will not, conquer it the gates of hell shall not overtake it then let's turn beside this confession there's some more foundation let's turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 We're looking at foundations here Chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And we're breaking in here when he's talking about the Gentiles. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the lord in whom also ye are built together for a habitation of god through the spirit here the church is pictured as a building as a temple a temple where worship so the church is a is a, a temple the the people in the church but notice the foundation here the foundation includes the apostles and prophets Now, we're told that the foundation is Jesus Christ. Well, it says here, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And in a building, the cornerstone was laid first. And I I don't know, in my Bible, the Thompson chain reference that I had, there it mentioned how they found what they think was the cornerstone of the first temple. Solomon's Temple. Now I don't know, that's what I'm, I'm going by memory now, but I remember they figure it was, it was so wide and so long, they figured it probably weighed 200 tons. Now that's my memory. It was huge. They put this thing in place, and then all the rest of the building lines up to that stone. That's the first stone, the cornerstone, and then you have more foundation, but they all line up, and then you have a build all line up to the cornerstone, God tells us that the apostles and prophets are part of the foundation they are a part of the establishment of the church that's why i can't be a red letter only Christian if you know what that means red letter there are some red letter bibles which the letter the words of Jesus are in red letter and there's There's a belief system that says the red letters are worth more than the rest of the New Testament. Well, they're more important than Paul or Peter or James. But then we must not swing to the other side and actually interpret Paul and Peter and James to say things that contradict the teachings of Jesus. Any interpretation of the New Testament that contradicts the teaching And the spirit of Jesus is a wrong interpretation because everything must line up to the foundation. So you could say, well, the red letters are more important. Well, no, but they are the found, they are the cornerstone. There'd be a similar scripture in Hebrews that I could, um, I could read that, that just repeats what I'm saying here about, well, I'll just read that one verse. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and then was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witnesses, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. So uh, it's just another reference about that. It was first spoken by the Lord, and then it was confirmed by the apostles and prophets. Liberal lines of thinking today generally tend to take the ethical teachings of Jesus, what Jesus taught as their gospel, the golden rule, don't judge, accept and intermingle with all society, no lines, no borders, including the outcast, and they tend to lean towards pacifism. The other line of thought thought that's generally common today is the uh, more leaning towards the epistles and focus on theological truths and propositional truths and the sovereignty of God and other things that are taught in the epistles, and they tend to be more militant. Jesus is the chief cornerstone He himself, who he is and his teaching, is the cornerstone. Apostles and prophets then laid the rest of the foundation. And then the church, the true church, has been building on that foundation for 2,000 years. The true church has been building on that foundation. It's not been squelched. It was never destroyed. The devil says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil cannot destroy this church. <clears throat> then Dale Heisey, in a message I heard, had listed ten major points that identify this true church that has been built on the foundation. The main body of the church had become corrupted and apostate. It was still called the church But it had left the foundation. And when you are no longer on the foundation, you can still say you are the true church, but you're not. Because you're not on the foundation. You have become, to use this word that I promoted, you have become another identity. (laughs) In fact, John actually identifies that identity in 1st John, and I actually didn't get the scripture, but he talks about the Antichrist in 1st John, the Antichrist. Instead of Christ, there is another foundation, an alternative foundation, all the while saying we are on the true foundation, but it's not the true faith once delivered to the saints by Jesus and the apostles. But God always had his true church, and they were, as you trace them, and that's what you call it, the pilgrim church, throughout history, sometimes disconnected in time, sometimes disconnected in geography, and by culture and language, yet there was always a true church throughout the ages that was the true church built on the foundation. They had they had persevered. They were many times ridiculed and ostracized and misused and persecuted. They had times of peace and growth, and then they had times of severe opposition and persecution. Dale gave them the name the Pilgrim Church that was the identity given. Now, just one one clarification before we go into those points. we can look at things corporately and we look at things individually. You can have a corporate church that is true to the word of God, is built on the foundation, and there are individuals in there that are not. And then you can have a church that is not on the foundation and there are individuals in it that are. I want to just clarify that because it um, we're making sort of broad strokes today. But this morning we will look at the corporate, uh, the corporate aspect of it. What are the universal characteristics of the Pilgrim Church down through the millennia? That's what we want to look at, 10 points. Some of this will be a little bit of history, but like I mentioned, history has an impact. What happened? A thousand And 1,500 and 2,000 years ago has an impact in our lives through the ideas that come down through. Some of those things, someone has said someone lays a theological egg that only hatches later on. That's one way to describe it. And when that egg hatches, then you get the posterity of that egg for the rest of time. Okay, number one, the Pilgrim Church views the Constantinian shift as the fall of the Church and not the triumph of the Church. This is universal among Pilgrim Church people. Constantinian shift. The early Church was persecuted by the Jews first. But in time, the Roman, the Roman government became the main opposition to the early church as far as its persecution and, and its trying to squelch it. If I remember right, and again I didn't, I think there were ten specific periods of persecution in the early church from the Roman government and the last one was at 303 to uh, 3, 311 <clears throat> there were waves of persecution and repression or, and repression that were hurled onto the early Christians but they continued to spread the movement could not be stopped in time their influence was so pervasive that a Roman general that was battling for the emperorship the night before a major battle when he was facing very possible defeat, saw a vision, and in the sky there was the this, this sign of a cross, the Christian symbol in the sky, and he was told by this sign, conquer And he did, uh, he did take that sign, and he conquered, and he attributed it. His victory, his military victory to the Christian God. And and so soon after he became emperor and was in power because of that winning that battle, he actually quit. Not only did the persecution quit, but he issued an edict where they were now legalized. It was now a legalized. Religion for the first time in Roman history, and then he began to bankroll church building projects. He uh, commissioning new copies of the Bible under government funds. He uh, summoned various councils to get the, the, the people together, to uh, the Christian leaders together, to work their kinks of their disagreements out. All under government payroll. It's like if we would, uh, we would be going to some kind of a, we're going out in June, out to that conference, and the government would pay for it and put us up and feed us their food and, and give us their, their rooms and all that. That's what he did. So, the Roman Empire went from severe persecution in 300, beginning of 300, to support in just a few years. And so we can say the Christian faith has finally conquered the mighty Roman Emperor Empire. The church has triumphed over its enemies. That's one view. We can't do a full history, but the pilgrim church, the people who remained faithful on the foundation, the minority saw this shift as the fall of the church and not its triumph. And it wasn't long before the minority who wouldn't accept that were being persecuted by the majority church. Now, what, why is that important today? Does it really matter what a Roman general did six, 1706 years ago? Well, it's like Moses. That intermingling of the church and state, which was the first of it, is still, that theological egg is still hat, that hatched and it's still going on today. It's still a rather vibrant concept. Now, it's different today. It's somewhat different. It, it's not a marriage in the same way, but the concept is still there. That shift is still there. And it looks deceptively correct. There is a deception in there. Here's a quote from the book, The Pilgrim Church, i I like to read here. The first three centuries of the church's history proved that no earthly power can crush it. It is invincible to attacks from without. The witnesses of its sufferings and even its persecutors became converts, and it grows more rapidly than it can be destroyed. The following period, this is the Constantinian shift now, the following period of, neither two, of nearly two, 200 years shows that the union of the church and state, even when the powers of the mightiest empire are put into the church's hands, do not enable her to save the state from destruction. For in abandoning the position which her very name implies of being called out of the world and of separation to Christ, she loses the power that comes from subjection to her Lord, exchanging it for an earthly authority that is fatal to herself. Sort of a summary of that. So number two, and here I'm going to have to have to be a little hard on I, I, Alan here, is Augustine. <laughs> they see Augustine as the theologian for the church state dogma, the territorial church position. He wrote the theology for a lot of the modern heresies that continue to this day. The Pilgrim Church sees Augustine. When they look back at Augustine, they don't look at him as an asset. They look at him as pulling the church further away. That does not mean, Alan, that there are not some good parts in it. In fact, I agree with that statement this morning. Augustine, or Augustine, whichever way you want to look at it, the church had departed in many ways from off the foundation. The church in Augustine's days, in the late 300s and early 400s, was in many ways off the foundation already. So here comes a brilliant man, and it seems with sincerity he then reinterpret scripture to fit the new paradigm of the church. It's from Augustine that we get that baptismal regeneration, which is salvation is impossible without baptism being administered by a priest. And that he would have said that infants are, are lost without baptism. And that that belief system emerged. This is where the Catholics look back at Augustine as the father of the Catholic Church because he, he gave the foundation for the whole sacramental system that the Catholic Church ended up having. Not everything was developed there, but it was the egg. <clears throat> he also developed a just war theory since Christians are now engaging in war. That's a new phenomenon. They're now engaging in war. Christians are. Therefore, they can't do war like the heathen do war. The heathen do war is just robbery and plunder. It's, it's, it's sanctified wholesale murder and thievery. No, we can't do that. We got to do, we got to have a just war. So you have to have a criteria of what you need to go through before you can actually do war. He developed that. That is still around today. Then there was a man named Pelagius. He taught he was a he was a a very prominent teacher, and he taught an error. He taught that mankind was not affected by Adam's fall. Mankind was a baby was born as a blank slate, not Pre Not predisposed towards evil or good, it was like an Adam, and therefore um, a person could, without the grace of God, could choose to not sin because they' are not predisposed towards evil well that's an that's a heresy that's that's wrong Augustine in response developed the opposite system, which is Election and predestination, total depravity, all the grace of God, and that whole, that whole plan that we know today as Calvinism. But probably his most egregious teaching was his interpretation of Luke chapter 14, verse 23. And this is where it says, and the, and the Lord said unto, it's a parable of, of Jesus, and the Lord said unto his servant, unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. With this verse, out of this verse, he gave the biblical sanction to use the full power of the state to force people to do what the church wanted them to do, including persecution and death. Compel them to come in. Make them come in. Here's the church. Here's a territorial church. Now everybody in this area is part of this church. And they have to be part of it. That's the thought. This interpretation, historians say, probably caused the death of a hundred million people. Well, you count not just the persecution, but also all the religious wars. Now, the, the excuse that's given for Augustine is he had no way of knowing that his interpretation would have such a devastating effect. And that is true. He had no way of knowing that. But the fact is, he was off the foundation. He had departed from the foundation. And so, many, many modern people look back at Augustine as, as a... Um, As a brilliant theologian, that was a positive thing. But the Pilgrim Church, throughout the centuries, rejected most of Augustine's teachings. The Catholics honor Augustine for the development of their church structure, and the Protestants honor him for his teaching on grace and salvation and other things. Okay, number three of the Pilgrim Church, and here we get into a little more, a little less history and we get into a little more we're, we're going somewhere. They rejected the territorial model, church model, that was in place now in exchange for a small group of committed believers in Christ, living in communion with those who truly follow the Lord Jesus. So here you have, here you have a, a, a large church with sinners and saints in it, and the pilgrim church says, "No, this is the true church," is and it's a it's a group of committed believers. So they reject it, what had come uh, had come to um, to be the normal back then. To them, the church was made up only of born-again and spirit-filled believers. And only those were permitted to be part of the church. That necessitates correction and discipline. It does necessitate that at times. Now, today... We don't have the territorial church, okay? That has been, thankfully, put back in history. The, the, uh, the Muslims still do that, but uh, the Christians don't have that anymore. But what that, what that whole idea has morphed to today is you can be a church member with no accountability to anyone. You can be called a Christian and not even attend a church, And so, the Pilgrim Church has always rejected that concept. And then, number four, point number four builds on the on the point number three. Number four is the Pilgrim Church sees discipleship or Christ-likeness as imperative to Christian experience. The Pilgrim Church sees discipleship or Christ-likeness as imperative to Christian experience. Jesus said very plainly in Luke chapter 14, 26 and 27, If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The pilgrim church followed Christ. Christ. They understood that the demands of Christ, the Lord Jesus, is absolute. It supersedes any other demands. We heard that in the children's lesson this morning. There is a surrendering and a yielding and a following and an embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His character and it's His values. And it's his life that is communicated to the Christian through the Holy Spirit. So the pilgrim Church believed in voluntary church membership based upon true conversion. A commitment to holy living and discipleship was absolutely essential. It was the very heart of this concept. This is the goal and the expectation from everyone who was a part of the Pilgrim Church. And I want, I want us to be thinking about us here. How do we fit as a Pilgrim Church? And I also want us to think as we would start a mission, what it would look like as we're going through these. Number five, the Pilgrim Church, they see the Sermon on the Mount as normative for Christian living. Normative means it's it's normal. Or, as we've heard recently, the Sermon on the Plain. That's what the message last Sunday was about. The main message of Jesus sets man's ideas on its head. To go up, you have to go down. To get you need to give to be happy you must first mourn to overcome evil you need to do good expect to be treated wrongly unfairly and harshly and when you are treated that way rejoice normative The Sermon on the Mount is normative for Christian living. It's not delegated to a future kingdom. It's not part of the law. It wasn't given and then taken back. And all the other reasons that people give why the Sermon on the Mount is not normative. From this point comes the doctrine known as non-resistance that we would... Understand, or more properly named, suffering love. Suffering love is actually the the outworking of non-resistant. This is normative for Christian living. There were always scattered faithful remnants throughout history, and there still are scattered faithful remnants to this day. On this point, we profess this point. Do we continually possess this point? Most churches and most people don't. Number six, the pilgrim church, they believed in baptism of believers and not of infants. Now, the baptism of infants gained its, gained its purpose and its strength when you had the territorial church in place because when babies were born... Their baptismal certificate was their birth certificate. They were recorded as being born and baptized and was part of their civil as well as their religious identity back then. Now it has become, just for the most part, a historical tradition of many churches. There are three churches in this town. You know what they are? The Lutheran Church and the Methodist Church and the Church of Christ. All three of them baptize infants. I don't know if you knew that. They all do in their history. They are part of the, their, their roots go back. Well, the Methodist Church doesn't so much go back to a territorial church because they were, came later, but they didn't change that part. In a group of committed followers of Christ, the way to become a member is by baptism. Now, I understand you do not get baptized, you don't become a member, I'm sorry. The purpose of baptism is not that you, I didn't think this one through very well. Here's the purpose of baptism, you're not actually Getting baptized in the name of the church. You're getting baptized into Christ and his teachings. And the church is a part of that. But it's a public demonstration and a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ for life. And in doing so, you also become a part of the local body of Christ. A people, a group of people who have already done that very thing and still are doing that. Michael Sattler, I have a quote here. He said, we must allow baptism to be just a sign by which we acknowledge that we are Christians, dead to the world, enemies of the devil, wretched and crucified people who seek not temporal but eternal blessings, striving unceasingly against the flesh, sin, and devil, and living a Christian life. Now, what he meant by that, of course, is baptism. He was saying baptism is not your salvation, which was what he was opposing at that time. Baptism is not your salvation. It's a sign. But what is a sign does it say? It's a sign that you acknowledge that you are a Christian, that you actually have forsaken the world and you've taken on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, number seven. The Bible is the final authority for the Christian, for the Pilgrim Church. Yet, yet, the New Covenant slash New Testament has a superior message to the Church of our time. So all the scripture is written and inspired, but the Pilgrim Church was always a New Testament Church. They didn't believe in a flat Bible or the merging or the confusion of the covenants. And and this is actually probably foundational to most of the other points that that um that the pilgrim church has. All the other points we looked at, the territorial church, infant baptism, rejecting of the Sermon on the Mount, and others all have their have their origin in the merging of the covenants. The confusion of the covenants. The Old Testament is foundational. It's historical. It's complementary. It describes the history of God's dealing with His people Israel. Of course, it has the creation and it has the flood and it has the prophets and it has Psalms and it has just it, it's a it's a real blessing. But. With the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, he brought in a new era, a new testament. When He, Before he died, when he, he gave that bread and he gave that wine, he said, this is the new covenant in my bro- blood. It, it changed from the old covenant to a new one. And so in his teaching, when he said, it has been said, but now I say to you, Jesus himself taught there's a major change. And instead of now God working primarily through a group of people, the Jewish people, with natural land, natural boundaries, and natural enemies, it has now become a spiritual kingdom for all people, with a spiritual warfare and spiritual enemies and they call it spiritual land. I guess that doesn't fold out. But the, um, the values of the kingdom are, like, like John said last week, the values and the promises of the kingdom are now spiritual and not earthly. So the new the pilgrim church has always been a New Testament church. Number eight, there is a clear distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world. Now, I like to emphasize a clear distinction. The kingdom of Christ, which is where the Christian church that's built on that foundation and that is building on that house. That kingdom of people under the lordship of Christ is distinctly separate. From all the kingdoms of the world where they have their laws and their lands and their things. They are separate. You cannot serve both. The perspectives and the goals and the values of the two kingdoms are different. And to be true to one, you must forsake the other. So if you will be true to the kingdoms of this world and operate in that kingdom, you must forsake Christ. If you're going to be true to Christ, you must refuse the kingdoms of this world. And uh, it's, it's very clear, especially when you come into the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, this, this whole national Debate that's going on right now of borders and refugees and so on. The government, the earthly kingdom has the right to make boundaries and to protect its people and to do what is necessary but that is not something for us to do in our kingdom. Our kingdom is for salvation, it's for caring for people, and, and we let that alone and we do what Jesus teaches us to do in our kingdom. They need to be we need to understand that and keep that separate. Now some Christians believe that since Christians must live in a world order that remains sinful, he must make compromise with it. As a citizen of an earthly country, he cannot avoid participation in the evil of this world, for instance, participating in war. So either this Christian thinks it's right to engage in war or else he believes he can do that and still be a Christian in his private life. But the idea is, since we're living in a world, we we must make compromise in some areas. The Pilgrim Church rejects this view completely because for him there can be no compromise, can be no compromise, dare be made with evil or against the teachings and the spirit of Jesus. The Christian, and I've written this down, the Christian may in no circumstance partake in any conduct in the existing social order, which is contrary to the spirit and teaching of Christ and the apostolic practice, he must consequently withdraw from the worldly system and create a Christian social order within the fellowship of the church brotherhood. That, so he does have a kingdom. He does have a social order, but it's separate from that. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole thing because we do relate to the earthly kingdom and and we're not going to get into all that. I'm just talking about our loyalty must be Christ. And there is a clear distinction between the two kingdoms. And we will need to refuse compromise and the kingdoms of this world that will cause us to compromise or ask for us to do so. Number nine. For them, the pilgrim church concept, I'm sorry, the pilgrim church concept, not creed, is evidence of living faith. The pilgrim church concept, not creed, is evidence of living faith. I'm looking at that right now. That's the way that, I think that's the way that probably Dale Heisey gave it. And I'm thinking that's not the clearest definition but what I meant, the Pilgrim Church concept is this commitment to following the Lord Jesus Christ. Creed is a doctrinal statement, something that you say you believe. So here you have your creed. I believe in Jesus. I mean, I believe in God, the Almighty, Almighty God. What is that? I can't think of the Apostolic Creed. You can say the Apostolic Creed. I don't have it right now. And that's a creed. And I believe all that. But for the Pilgrim Church, what you, what you did, how you lived, not what you say you believed, is the essence of uh Let me look here again. In other words, it's not your words that in the end count, but your life. So for the Pilgrim Church... How you live, like James said, if you if you say, I believe in God, but you don't actually do this, then your faith is dead. There There are many, many, many people who will say they believe this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that my sins were forgiven by Jesus. And I believe in God. And I believe God created the world. And I believe, and I believe, and I believe. And I believe. Do you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the Pilgrim Church concept. Like James says, it needs to be a living faith. Then number 10. The Pilgrim Church will be persecuted, but will never persecute. They will be killed, but they will never kill. You know, they will have a book at home that has a long title. It's a book that probably many of you have. I'd like to know how many of you have the martyr's mirror in your home. Okay. Maybe half a dozen. When did you last read it? <laughs> I know. Last night, last week, last month, last year? Here's the title of that book if you look at in inside cover. The Bloody Theater or Martyr's Mirror of the Defenseless Christians who baptized only upon confession of faith and who suffered and died for the testimony of Jesus from the time of Christ to the year 1660 A.D. As was stated, Millions of people have been killed by so-called Christians. That is in violation to the teachings of Jesus. That is confusing the Old Testament and the New Testament covenant. The pilgrim church is a defenseless church. And in a sense, it gives itself up to the will of God when its enemies come and try to destroy it. And it is that defensiveness, list, that that explicit trust in God, that that um, that hope and the faith that burns in them that countercultural way of living that they have had and now is put on public display and people can see that, that is a powerful witness. Here comes somebody who's going to kill you, and you do not try to destroy them. They do not try to destroy their enemies with carnal force. Of course, there are ways you can flee. You can do various things like that, but you will not. You will not go after your enemy to destroy him. So those are the ten points of the Pilgrim Church. Based on these criteria, can we be identified as a pilgrim church? Are we built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? Do we, as a church, or do we individually believe and practice these points? And what kind of church would we be envisioning to establish in the city if the converts are from a different culture and a different history? And yet, it's the same foundation. One of the reasons, again, for the message, if a person, like I said earlier, if a person for a specific reason needs to go to a a, a situation like a college or a place like that where he is outside the um, the normal environment, they are much better equipped if they know what they believe and why they believe it. If they have clarity of identity, like imagine. If we take these ten points, each of them, you, that person going into that environment, clearly understands and, is, and is, um, it's a part of his experience, it's part of his belief, and it's part of his practice, and he's in a community that is doing that and that person goes into that situation, he has an identity, has an identity within himself, he has an identity within the brotherhood, he is on the foundation of Christ and the apostles, that person is not very vulnerable, not nearly vulnerable, as someone who does not have that, doesn't know what they believe, doesn't have a foundation, that's just clear. And then, if we want to have a cross-cultural mission, Same thing is needed to be effective in that area as well. We know and we are convinced of the truth. We are united in our understanding and practice. And we are continually ministering to each other so that none of us goes in a different direction. That is the anatomy of the pilgrim church. The decisions that we make now... And the actions that we have now will have an enormous impact on the future generation. If we depart from this foundation, it will have an enormous impact. If we are faithful to this, it will have a big impact as well. Here is here is um, a quote that I found from France Agricola. I guess is his name, living, a man living in the 1500s that was an enemy of the pilgrim church. But he wrote about the pilgrim church. And you might have heard this one already too. It's a fairly common quote, but I'm going to like to read it. And I want this to be true of us. Listen to this quote. Among the existing heretical sects, there is none which in appearance, leads a more modest or pious life than the Anabaptist. This is what it was in that case. Remember, he's an enemy. He doesn't like them. As concerned their outward public life, they are irreproachable. No lying, deception, swearing, strife, harsh language. No intemperate eating and drinking. No outward personal display is found among them but humility and patience and uprightness and meekness and honesty and temperance, straightforwardness in such measure that one would suppose that they had the Holy Spirit of God. (laughs) Amen. Maybe they did. (laughs) But I would wish for that to be true of each one of us. The Lord Jesus Christ, being our life. Okay, I think we'll just stop right there. The anatomy of a pilgrim church, making our identity clear. I think maybe uh, the scriptural, the scriptural wording would be. Um, making your calling an election sure. I think that would probably be the scriptural reading for that. So why don't we just, again, let's pause for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for um, coming and laying that foundation. And We thank you, Lord, for the spirit that you have given, that you said will be with us until the end, until the end of the age, until the end of time. That your promise goes the whole way to the end. And Lord, that spirit today is with us. And that spirit today, Lord, can guide us and lead us, equip us and empower us. And Lord, I pray you do that for us as a congregation. And I pray you do that for each one of us as individuals. Lord, you alone are worthy. And it's your kingdom, as, as you say in the Lord's prayer, for thine is the glory Thine is the power and the glory forever. Amen.